Hello, everybody. Hello. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 68. And we'll continue in our exploration of using the Psalms as God's prayer book, which it is. And uh, today we're going to focus on uh, Psalms that refer to the church. And, um, you know, as I'm seeing this pattern. Uh, which I'm borrowing from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, by the way, that uh, <clears throat> they uh, each subject we're looking at in the Psalms, so far as the, the law, uh, the history, history of God's history, uh, the church, our Lord, the Messiah. Uh, we saw the Messiah in the in the uh, Psalms, and they all get to like um, our real life application of things. Like, how do, how do we live on a day-to-day basis? Which has been interesting for me because I want to, I, th- I think I want to emphasize that as, as we move past this. But, um, yeah, it's kind of like a, a day-to-day instruction manual in a way. So, uh, let's begin with prayers we do. Let's thank God for our time together to hear his word and to be instructed in the wonderful things that he has preserved for us having the humility before our Father and our Lord to be good students and um, those who are humble and ready to learn. And so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for another gathering that we have our privilege to be a part of, to listen to your word, to read your word, to be instructed in the things of truth so that we may grow in grace and knowledge, that we may understand you more and worship you better, and to have the great joy in our lives that you have reserved for us, which is your life your joy, your peace, your hope. Uh, So we, Father, are grateful and we ask that through your Spirit, each of us would, in our own way, what we need, be enlightened in, in your word and instructed in the things that we either need to change or to be corrected of or to be encouraged in. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, in the Psalms, there is also a, a great mentioning. Now, of course, the Psalms don't mention the church because it's not the church age yet. Uh, but what the Psalms do mention uh, over and over are the gatherings of Israel. Uh, and what we mean by that is uh, the nation uh, or really Zion. We're, so what, we're, what it focuses on uh, <clears throat> and where the people are coming to gather uh, is Jerusalem, Zion, uh, and the temple and the various festivals. Uh, three, t- and three festivals over the year that men, if they could, were, you know, if they were close enough to do it, they were to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate that. Uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They were to be be there. They were to be at the temple. And so uh, this is a smattering. There's more. But in Psalm 27, 
42, 46, 48, 63, 81, 84, and 87, uh, and others, we'll look at some others, uh, speak of the gatherings of Israel, sing of them, pray of them, uh, where Israel gathers together, and we're going to make a connection between these and the church. Uh, Not that the church is Israel, we understand that, but God gathered with his people, and he gathered in the temple. What's different between the church and Israel, there's many things, by the way, that are the same with the church and Israel. I I think uh, some dispensationalists, uh, some call them like hyper-dispensationalists. That's always a word we throw on somebody when we don't like what they're teaching. So we call them hyper something. (laughs) But hyper, you know, the dispensationalists sometimes are so adamant about keeping the church and Israel separate that they they keep everything separate. And, you know, as I talked to one person about this before, I said, you know, we have the same Savior. There's there's one similarity. And uh, we're actually beneficiaries of the covenants as well. Uh, But it doesn't mean the church is Israel. That's when the pendulum swings the other way. And it's called replacement theology, and that is wrong. But uh, anyway, uh, God is in our midst as well when we gather together. But with us, it's not a building. With Israel, it was the temple or the city or Zion. That was the place. Uh, But for us, the place doesn't matter. What matters for us is when believers are gathered together to worship the Lord If we're gathered together in the Lord's name, the Lord is in our midst. No matter where we are, it could be a broom closet, it becomes a church. So, specifically, these psalms, and I, you know, I read through them, and the ones that stuck out to me, the one that stuck out to me that I liked the most was 84. Um, But, you know, that's just me. None of these are super long either. You could read through all of them in in a sitting in about 15 to 20 minutes. But anyway, specifically, they speak of Jerusalem, the city of God, the great festivals of the people of God, the temple, and the beautiful worship service. Here's the thing about <coughs> pious Jews, or the Jews uh, in, in Israel that were faithful. They saw no difference between the ritual and God. It wasn't God and the ritual. The ritual, the temple, the city even, It was God's city, and they didn't see him as any different. Now, it's not that they thought the temple was God. It didn't say, that doesn't mean equal. Uh, If something's equal, you can reverse them, you know. But it's kind of like us in Christ, and Christ is in us. But that doesn't mean we're equal with Christ, because that would mean that we're God and we're not. But when it comes to the body of Christ, you can't separate the body of Christ from the head. We'll we'll be with him forever. You can't separate the church from Christ. But yet people do, and that becomes an issue, and then they start worshiping church instead of the Lord. And then that place, that assembly, ceases to be a church. Um, So in in the minds of the pious Jews, they considered the city, the temple, to not be something distinct from God. That's a careful wording I'm using there. They didn't see them as uh, separate from God. And so what happened in Israel, when as soon as they started seeing the rituals separate from God, they started worshiping the rituals. 
And that's when they became uber legalistic or just legalistic. So faithful Israel, the faithful in Israel did not see Jerusalem temple or rituals as distinct from God. Notice Psalm 68, 16. Let's just read a couple of passages here quickly. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. And this is Zion. Uh, By the way, there's just a couple of more lines, and and you've got a passage there that's quoted by Paul in Ephesians uh, 4, where he ascended on high and gave gifts to men. Uh, The mountains with many peaks are the mountains of Bashan. They're the great, big, huge mountains that are in the north of Israel, and they envy Zion. Zion is a little, well, it's a hill, and it's hard. It's hardly a mountain. Uh, and so, but notice, surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Look at Psalm 69, the next one. Psalm 69, 9. For the zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would cleanse the temple. Right? So if Christ saw the temple as something separate from God and the worship of God, he wouldn't have really cared so much about the fact that they were selling things there. I mean, it's just a building, right? But it was a place of a house of prayer. He says that, quote in Isaiah. So the zeal for your house has consumed me. Go to Psalm uh, 84, verse 1. I think it's verse 1. That looks wrong. <clears throat> yep, that's right. Psalm 84, 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Right, and there, so now we're going to make a connection here because these psalms are speaking about the dwelling place of the people of God in the Old Testament, and now we have our dwelling place, uh, our gathering place, which for us is a basement on Hind Street. But the, again, the building doesn't matter. What matters is the people, and and what are we here for? That's what matters too. Uh, <clears throat> if we all came here on a, you know a day that we weren't learning God's word, and we just, I don't know, had dinner or, you know, would it, would it be a gathering of, you know, of a worship of God? If we just came here to, I don't know, to do something that was not centered on the worship of God, it wouldn't be the gathering that is the church. So, then uh, lastly, uh, Psalm 87.2. 87.2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Right, so there, it's, Zion is not just a place. It's, it's not arbitrarily picked. You know, it's not just land. You know, that God said, you know, I, I don't know, where should we put my house? Uh, I guess over there. That looks fine. It's, it's nothing like that. This is particularly chosen. And it's a place that God is going to return to, that Jesus Christ is going to return to, and establish his kingdom or his, his millennial reign. Uh, <clears throat> and so, as we transition this to our gathering, a, a lot is said about that in the New Testament. What are we to one another 
And this should be an intricate part of our prayer life because as Paul told us in Ephesians 6, we need to continually pray for one another and pray for the saints. We're to pray for one another. And one of the things that we're to pray about is, uh, it's another command, is how are we to serve one another? And that becomes something that is tricky for all of us because all of us possess a sin nature that doesn't want to serve anybody but himself or herself. And uh, we uh, easily uh, self-deceive in our, um, say, commitments. You know, our commitment to one another can be easily watered down by us or really non-existent and self-justified. And the scripture has a lot to say about that. Uh, So it is the presence of God, our God of salvation, in our congregation. You know, we're here, us now, are gathered to hear God's word. And that is a worship of God. And so that means, and I know Jesus indwells us all, the Son of God indwells us all. But what that means when we're gathered is that he is here. And, and I, it's not a mystical thing, it's a real thing. And he's in our midst. And, you know, if he were really here, uh, and he is, but let's just say he was here all the time we gathered, he was here physically, how would our behavior be? You know, how would our thinking be? And, and, but it is to be that. <clears throat> so the church... First off, look at uh, Psalm 46. The church will withstand enemies. We have nothing to worry about. And I I like how uh, recently the point was, you know, risen in something that I read that we don't really know where we're going. Uh, And I thought when I first read this, I was like, oh, where is this going? And, uh, and it, it's exactly right, because if you're not to worry about tomorrow and you're living for today, then what comes tomorrow you have no idea. And therefore, you're, if we're doing this right, we're committing our entire lives to the obedience of Christ and where he's going to take us, right? He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Where he's going to take us, we haven't a clue. And that's not a geographical location, obviously. That's, you know, a place in our heart, in our place uh, in our service. I mean, it could be geographical in certain situations, but, um, you know, where where are we going? And uh, we don't like this, obviously. we're, We're planners. And and because of this, we kind of we subtly make deals with God in terms of like, well, if you show me how this is going to work out, maybe I'll do it. You know, maybe I'll consider it. And we we become theological debaters, saying that, well, you know, we'll get to this passage in Luke ten. Who's our neighbor? You tell me to serve my neighbor, but come on, let's think about it. And by the way, God, you haven't told me who my neighbor is. 
And it's right there in his word. You could, it's so obvious, it's easy to miss. Who is the neighbor? <laughs> and uh, Anyway, so look at Psalm 46. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to the Alamoth. You know what? No one knows what an Alamoth is. So you can fill in the blank for yourself. Uh, song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake in its swelling pride, Salah. And Salah means to meditate on these things, on what you've just heard. So, um, <clears throat> the note, and you know, in the past I would read stanzas like this and be just like, well, you know, why, why is this here? And, and uh, this kind of uh, writing about God is very frequent in the scripture. Uh, <clears throat> you know, he splits mountains. He makes the seas roar. Uh, he, he can catch Leviathan, which is this great sea monster with a hook. Uh, he can, you know, he can do this, he can do that. And why is this, why is it so often? It's because God has asked us to put our entire confidence in him. And he's showing off. And he does it a lot. He wants you to read, because you're not going to read the whole Bible every time you, you sit down or read all the Psalms. So you're going to see this a lot in the Psalms. So that when you're reading a psalm or praying a psalm, you're going to be reminded of the fierce power of the one that you're trusting. So again, it starts, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Well, okay, then what? Therefore, conclusion, we will not fear, though the earth should change. There's climate change, right? If it changes, so be it. Am I afraid? No, I I need not be. Why? Because if the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, if all the mountains just go away and fall into the sea, it's not a big deal to him. And so this is the one who has asked us to put our entire lives in his hands. And this means, and it, it means what it means. You, know, you can't, this is another place where we get uh, fancy with our theology so that we can kick the can down the road. And what I mean by that is complete obedience. But wait, wait, what does it really mean to put my life in his hands? I mean, it's imagery, isn't it? That's what we can get fancy with imagery. But the image is clear. uh, Complete obedience to every aspect of his will. So he says in verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The river here, and streams, should refer us back to the introduction of all the Psalms in Psalm 1. And if you remember, the stream was the law of God. And the blessed ones were a tree planted by that stream and drew its strength from that stream 
and was made clear in Psalm 1 that they delighted in the law of God day and night. So there is a river, call it the law of God, whose streams make glad the city of God. And I'm going to, I'm going to, use, I'm going to be bold here and use city of God as grace and truth ministries. Although it's a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to go for it. Uh, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. This is a place where God dwells. When we're gathered together and listening to his word, worshiping him, singing to him, even serving one another before and after service, it's worship. it should be worship of God. And so it's a dwelling place. It's a holy. Now, holy meaning you know, our conduct, our behavior, our thinking is with God and therefore of God in his will. And we'll see what that is as we continue with this, because to be holy is not just an individual thing, although it includes that. It is how I think within myself, but it's also how I think about you. And how I think about you is very important to my worship of God. Have you done it to the least of them? You've done it to me. So uh, then he says, God, verse 5, God is in the midst of her she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. And so here comes the, um, the attack. And this is kind of puts the church in like the prison of the world, although we're not really imprisoned. But we're also, as Christ said, if you follow me, they're going to persecute you. And so, you know, the church in America, it's a little bit persecuted but in other nations in this world, is very, very much persecuted. And so, the nations made an uproar. Where else did we see the nations making an uproar? That was in Psalm 2. Uh, and it said, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs at them. So again, that's part of the introduction to the Psalms. So again, verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. Notice that. We will not be moved. We can have all complete confidence. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. I love it. With what, how did, what did he do? He just raised his voice a little. Melted everything. Which is coming, by the way. Second Peter chapter 3. The elements will melt. And then verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. And Salah means meditate. Verse 8, Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two of his enemies. He burns the chariots with fire. Which is interesting because Elijah sees, knows that he, Elisha, sorry, the prophet Elisha knows that he is surrounded by the army of God and they're in chariots of fire. And uh, here we see that same phrase, he burns the chariots with fire. Those are his enemies. Cease striving and know that I am God. It's a very famous line, but rightly so. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Salah. It is beautiful. 
and what comfort this could give you. And as you become one, and I hope you do, uh, a psalm a day, maybe. Am I pushing it? I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm going to tell you that you have to. <laughs> no, <laughs> I have no authority to do that. Uh, you, over time, you will be able to. You could even write them in your Bible. This psalm is for this, and when you need it, you could go get it. And this this is just beautiful for your church, for your gathering, your family, and when you're under pressure. And just this, just this to be reminded, the God of Jacob is my stronghold. I need not fear. Is he going to test me in this? You betcha. Quite a bit. But then we're going to know if he's our stronghold, right? Now, uh, I love how he's this cease striving, cease striving. As he said to Saul of Tarsus, are you tired of fighting me? <laughs> and the King James kicking against the pricks. This is always, uh, I remember where we first read that translation, we were like, oh, excuse me? But it didn't mean what it sounded like in English. But cease uh, striving. What does this mean? It's striving is when you're trying to forge your own way in this world. You're trying to solve your own problems. You're trying to give yourself pleasure. You're trying to uh, give yourself... Here's what it really is. You're making direct contact with people and with things and with the world. And what I mean by that is that it's not you, Christ, and then them. And then it. It's you and it, and you're trying to forge a relationship. Like, for instance, take pleasure. All of us want it. All of us want joy. All of us want to be entertained. All of us want pleasure. And we try and put ourselves in direct contact with the pleasure. And it's not meant to be that way. We were never meant to be together. We were always meant to be with Christ. The pleasure of this world has fallen, and we're fallen. But when we believed in Christ, we became His. He became our Lord. We became in Him and Him in us. And so, does that mean no pleasure? No. It means that it's you and Christ with people and with things. And in that way, and what we do when we get disobedient is we push Christ out of the way and we rush headlong into whatever it is. Could be a person, could be a relationship, could be anything. And this is what striving is. Trying to forge your own way in this world. Trying to forge your own relationships, your own things. Say, these things that I have, they're mine. And then, why, why do people, even when they don't have stuff, but when they do have stuff, it doesn't matter, but why are people not gracious? Why don't they give? Why don't they give to the church? Why don't they give to the people, other people? Uh, because it's them and their things. And then we justify. Well, I can't give it all away. But, and and God, God actually does tell us to give it all away. But, you know, he means, you know, not for all of us to live on the street. And so, but what he also means is that we should be recklessly gracious. 
No, and I'm working on this myself. If you, if, and all the things I'm going to say in the next few classes, if you say, well, what about you, Pastor? Uh, that's not the point. I've had somebody do that to me not too, too long ago. What about you? Am I supposed to not teach the Word of God because I'm an imperfect man? Who's going to teach the Word of God then? We have to wait for Jesus to come back. <clears throat> Cease striving. It's me, Christ, and my money. Me, Christ, and my things. Me, Christ, and my pleasure. Me, Christ, and my wife and my child. You push Christ out of the way and it's you and your child. What happens? You start worshiping the child almost. Sad as that is. Because they're idiots. Just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. So uh, they are though. Cease striving is when you give yourself completely to Christ and he becomes the mediator between you and everyone else and everything else. This is complete obedience. Some think that you have to have this to be saved. In other words, if you're not disobedient, you're not saved. That's called lordship salvation. <clears throat> they can stick that in the in back in the folder, or we'll put it that way. That it's it's not true. Salvation is by grace through faith. It, this is for those who are saved. He bids us to obey him, to follow him. So, no matter how bad things look, and, and this is what gets us, we commit, you can commit to this and say, you know what? The Word of God is right. I, I, Christ has to be my mediator to everything. And I need to completely commit myself to Him. And then what happens over time is that the world system, our sin nature, makes us afraid. You can't do this. Right? It makes us afraid. What are you missing out on? You know? If you're going to put pleasure on the other, you know, if you're going to put Christ between you and the pleasure, that means that you can't, like, reach and grab it whenever you want. Right? What about when Christ says, you got to hold off now? What, what happens when Christ says, because there's someone here, this is a, was a big thing, it was the eating meat sacrifice to idols. Paul said, look, if someone sees you eating meat in a temple and they're weak in their mind, they're going to think you worship idols. So you can't eat it. He said, but I really want to. It's a juicy steak. He said, no, you can't have it. Because you're hurting your brother. That puts Christ between you and the steak and between you and your brother. And operating in the law of love, when we put Christ between us and our things and our and people, we find ourselves needing to sacrifice because that's what he is. And so what happens to us? And I've fallen for this more times than I, I, I want to <laughs> even admit to myself. You're going to lose out. It's not, you're not, you're going to, you're going to lose. Right? When I want to yell and scream at him or her. Am I putting Christ between me and him and her? Oh, no. I'm saying, Christ, step aside. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And what if I don't? I say, well, they'll get away with it. I need to, I need to say something here. If it's not in love, you do not. And neither do I. 
I'm guilty of that. So the world system uses a fear tactic to try to drive us into demonic and sinful ways. This is a beautiful time for when you are struggling, and it will be a mental show, oh, physical in fact, that to go to God in prayer and pull out Psalm, what was, what was it? Four, I've got them all confused now. 46? Or 84, 40, and God, any of them will probably do. But, um, you know, it's, and, and the Lord leads us in that lurch. And then so, as, as I mentioned, in Second Kings chapter 6, the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out. And behold, an army of horses and chariots were circling the city. And Elisha is in that city, and he's completely alone. And what does that whole army want to do? Get Elisha. And the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear. Oh, I bet he said it's so calm. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And we, I mean, not only do we have that, because all of us are served by angels, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within our bodies. Uh, The imprisonment, therefore, of the church will end. This is another thing to keep in mind. Uh, Psalm 126 and Psalm 137, I I just put these up so you can, you know, if you have them and you want to read them, that, uh, you know, the the difficulties of this world are going to end. And here in those two Psalms, it's about the pressure that's on the gatherings of Israel are going to end. And same with the church. Uh, We uh, are going to be in the eternal state and there's a day coming where there will be no more conflict. Our Lord's going to return. I was reading that passage today, and uh, as we return with the in Revelation 19, we shout out "Hallelujah," <laughs> and uh, we do it. It's stated in that passage four times in heaven, right before the the wedding feast of us and Him. There's four hallelujahs shouted out in heaven so loud that it sounds like thunder. So Christ's presence is among us in our church. Uh, And it's our reason for thanksgiving, for joy, and for longing. And it's a part of why we gather together. We're not just here for ourselves. We often say, i got to go get my doctrine. And you do. You have to go get your doctrine. But you're not here just for you. Um, So... Christ said in Matthew 18:20, "For where two or three are gathered, or have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst." And Christ tells us, go to Ephesians 5, that there's a uh, the Greek uh, the Greek word is alaleon. Alaleon means one another, and it's used quite a bit in the New Testament. One another. <coughs> 
So we need to remember that when we come to the church, when we gather to learn or to sing or to work, to serve one another, we are coming into the midst of Christ. and, And I have to remember this too, by the way. I'm not here to be, you know, I'm here to teach you but my, my uh, concentration needs to be on you, on your learning, not, you know, how I deliver it. Or, and pastors easily fall into that. Um, it's not about me. It's not about any one person. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in our midst, and we're here to serve one another. Uh, and so it's not the building, again, it's the people who make the church, and the presence of Christ directly impacts what we do when we're here together. And this is why, for instance, open manifestations of sin, while it may be tolerated in like a bus station or something, is not tolerated in the church. And because this is a place where Christ is. Uh, We are to be speaking to one another by the principles and boundaries of the word of God. We are to have joy in our hearts and share that joy with one another. We're to be thankful for all things in his name. And when we're in his name together, notice in here, in my name really means not just us saying it, but it means that we're his representatives and that we're under his will, under his authority. Uh, And so we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Look at Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And here, notice, there isn't a procedure. I'm, I'm uh, biding my time to get to this passage. We're, we're going to study it because I want to do a study on the filling of the Spirit. Uh, there's, there's no procedure given. What is given is a lifestyle. And so this be filled with the Spirit speaks of something that is a type uh, or a, a style of living not an instantaneous on and off kind of thing where I have the Holy Spirit on a light switch and it's on and I'm smart and it's off and I'm dumb. It, it, this, this, is, you know, this is a life that is filled, uh, a lifestyle that is filled, uh, and we'll see that. But, uh, of course, it does mean that when we sin that we're grieving the Spirit. That's absolutely true. So, uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Note, it's a progression. Uh, There's speaking to one another, singing to one another, making melody to one another, Right, so this singing, we you know we say, well, are we supposed to sing to one another? No, he's speaking of, he's speaking of hymns and psalms that were, um, Paul includes them in his epistles, these early hymns. Uh, I'm working on one right now for my Greek class in uh, Colossians one. There's in Colossians one, Philippians. Actually, we're going to see one coming up here in a second. Uh, there, so there. They're words that are beautiful of God's will, that have deep meaning. And this is how we are. Not that we're to speak to one another in like King James English or nothing like that. It's just that our, our thoughts to one another 
are under the beautiful will of God in the beautiful word of God, however you choose to word it. You know, and that would be psalms and hymns that we speak to one another, making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's joy. Giving thanks for all things. That means I'm not around you griping about this and griping about that. I mean, I know. He doesn't tell us to be sinless. Sometimes we gripe. <laughs> but, you know, it's, if that's all we're doing, you know, or if, or if we don't recognize at some level that that is not how we are to be, complaining about things that you know, have no, no matter here. Not here, at least. Making melody in your heart, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then, lastly, and this is the greatest one, see, it's a progression from speaking to you with psalms and then subjecting myself. This is submission. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Why the fear of Christ? It's because I am obligated to this and he's my Lord. And subject to one another. So in this way, which is the mind of Christ, again, Christ is my mediator between me and you, I consider you as more important than myself. And, you know, this, this is the true definition of humility. Go to Philippians 2. This is a hymn from uh, actually verse... 5 through 8. Philippians 2, let's start in verse 3. And then what we're going to see just quickly here uh, how this is to be a part of our prayer life, meaning that we're in searching with God the consistent. Um, reality of this attitude in our hearts. Not just words in the Bible, but a reality in the type of people that we are. So he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. See that? He defines humility right there. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not look out for your own personal interests. The word merely there is added by the translators. It's not in the Greek. I mean, I don't know enough Greek yet to know if it should be there, but I know it's not there uh, uh, in, in, in the literally, but we'll include it. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself of what? Not deity, but he emptied himself of the, uh, the overt expression of his deity. He covered his deity in humanity. He gave up no glory, nor gave up anything. But he covered his deity in humanity and obedience to the Father, who, although he existed in the form of God, but emptied himself, 
Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our example. It's him. He gave his all, everything, to the Father. Um, And it's something that is... I mean, we know it's above and beyond anything that we can understand, and yet that's exactly where it should be. Uh, so complete uh, of humility that, and, and this is not us being humiliated, although we need that at times, but it is our own, our own, in our own minds regarding one another is more important than we are. And that is to lose your life. And man, that is, your sin nature is going to fight you tooth and nail on that. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, uh, just harping on this same point. Verse 24, let, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging, and there it is again, one another, alaleon. Uh <clears throat> So to consider this, and I always say this, this is a premeditated thing. It means I, I have to, I walk into the church. You're more important than me. Uh, when I'm around you, when I'm around other believers, you're more important than me. Do you need anything? Do you need a word of encouragement? Do you need service? Have I considered you? Or have I just considered me? And then I find out you had a need that I could fulfill. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. And here comes our theology. <laughs> I love this because I've done, I've done it so much. The theology is, well, how could I have known? Did you pray? Did you ask? Did you seek? Did you knock? Did you do any of this? Be honest. You don't have to be honest with anybody else but God. He sees it anyway. So Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 5.1, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Christ perfected the ultimate sacrifice and by it showed us what sacrifice was. We are to love one another. We are to consider one another more important than ourselves. We are to serve one another We are to consider everyone in the church and wonder how we can stimulate them to loving good deeds. And this, the perfect place to do this is in your prayer life. As Paul said, pray continually for all the saints. What can I, Father, put it on my heart. Open up my eyes. Keep me looking. What could I possibly do for them? And then here comes theology again. They don't really need anything, do they? They look fine to me. Well, unless, you know, it's people who carry their heart on their sleeve. Those are the ones that are looking for it usually. You know, that are, if you, those are, well, anyway, I shouldn't say that. But we know those people where they, they are always looking to be encouraged and they want it 24-7. And they never find any strength. Be that as it may, you know, we're to keep giving and giving. 
but you know, I'm talking about the 99.9% .9 of Christians who are more normal. Uh, <clears throat> have we considered it? For us, our sacrifice is found in thankful doing for others. And it's not to be in half measures. This is the church. This is the church of Israel, not the church of Israel, but the gatherings of Israel. They were to love where their neighbor as themselves, right? And what kind of love was that? It was divine love. Now, we, we have been given the love of Christ because we're in Christ. We can participate in the real love. And I used to always think, well, Israel had like a lesser love. No, it was the love of God then. It's the love of God now. It's just that they didn't have the position that we do. They could only, it's same thing. They were supposed to love as God loved. And if they really had faith in it, they would have gone pretty far with it uh, for those who did. Uh, but for us, if we go very far with it, we're very Christ-like in a way that they couldn't be. And so for us, our sacrifice is found in thankful doing for others, not half measures. Our tendency is to hold back, and that's the flesh. And all of us, you have to be, we have to be honest that all of us struggle with it. And if we're not honest about that, we won't go to God and confess the sin. And I don't mean whether today you, you didn't serve anybody or not, but the, you know, the, the, what's in your soul that's holding you back? That's a, a way of sinfulness, a way of weakness that I personally believe that when Christ said confess our sins, that those were in, that's included, you know, the... Whether I committed the sin today or not, but I'm in constant communication with him over these weaknesses that are lurking. They're always lurking, and I haven't fixed them you know, with, with God. Uh, so we have a tendency to put off complete obedience. But obedience is immediate and full. You know, could you imagine that commands of God had like a, uh, a preliminary period. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, <laughs> and it had like a staging period. Like if God said, all right, I want you to go. And you would say to him, you mean right now? And he would say, well, what do you think I mean? Tomorrow? If I say go, go. Right? But it, what is a command? Is it meant to be obeyed like right now? Well, yeah. When God gives it. Yeah, if, if someone tells you to do something sinful and they have authority over you, you say, uh-uh, I obey the Lord. That you re can reject. But when God says, do this, where in the scripture do you see that he says, well, when you're a little more mature, do it. This is what I did. I don't want to waste too much time here, but this is what I did with the stages of spiritual growth. I realize now, not that I don't think that there's stages. There are, because we've got to grow in grace and knowledge. But I would say to myself, well, I'm not at spiritual maturity yet, so that doesn't apply to me. 
I'm only a spiritual adolescent or whatever I thought I was. I'm not there yet. I don't have to do that. Where do you see that? Read. Where do you see God saying, all right, here are the commands for you babies, and here are the commands for you teenagers? Not there. Obedience is immediate and full. So go to Luke 10. I hate that I have to rush this. It's okay. We can rush it a little. This, uh, again, the, the main theme of this is us in the church with one another. The church in the Psalms. Uh, the gathering of the people of God. What are we to be to one another? As a body, uh, we serve one another. We have spiritual gifts to serve one another. Our spiritual gifts are given to us for the common good. We are to equip one another. We are perfectly fitted with one another. It was all in Ephesians 4, which wasn't too long ago. And so uh, if we find... So what happened is here, a lawyer asked Christ what was the greatest command. And you can see uh, that this lawyer, he's kind of like in with the scribes. He's one of these guys. uh, But anyway... uh, you can see what he, he wants to test the Lord. He's not asking because he really wants to know. And actually, he already knows, which Christ is going to bring out. And he's trying to test him. And meaning that he, he wants a debate. He wants to debate. He's a lawyer. So, we find that the man asks a question not for the purpose of obeying it. What's the greatest command? He already knows it, so why isn't he doing it, right? He doesn't care about doing it. But what else are commands for besides doing? Are they for debate or are they for doing? I suppose if the command was really complex and we're like, I don't understand what you're asking, then we need more clarification. But love your neighbor, yeah, (laughs) it's pretty obvious. Right, it's like, so, and that's what this guy is doing. If we keep posing problems, even theological ones, we keep pushing the can down the road. We're kicking it down the road. This is what this guy is doing. This is why it's in the Gospels, and it's such a wonderful event. We keep pushing actual obedience down the road. You know what? Jesus isn't interested in debating the question. He's not even interested. So, he says to the lawyer, you already know the answer. So, look at verse 25. And the lawyer stood up and put, to, and put him to the test. So, we know why he's doing this. He's very similar to the rich young ruler who, you know, what do I have to do to have eternal life? He doesn't really care about having eternal life. Neither does this man. So, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor, love is understood, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. We are told explicitly that the lawyer means to test Jesus. 
He intends to land the Lord with himself in a place of moral doubt. What is the greatest command? And then when Jesus says something, the lawyer will say, well, you know, is it really? How can we measure the greatest command? Let's talk about it. And this ends up in endless debate. Say, well, I think this is the greatest command. Well, I see your point, but I think this is the greatest command. Yeah, I understand. Uh, But what about this command? How do they relate to one another? And on and on we're talking, and none of us are doing anything. So Jesus tells him, verse 28, he said to him, you answered correctly, do this, and you will live. What must I do to have eternal life? To love the Lord your God. Now, the Lord his God is standing in front of him. Of course, this would mean faith in Christ, which is the means of salvation. But the Lord, again, is not interested in debate. He's interested in obedience. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer lost the first round. So he must counter... So his mind moves on to the next moral difficulty. You know, what? all right, uh, <coughs> that's not what I expected. What else can we debate? All right, if we'd agreed that this is the greatest command, in verse 29, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so this is one of those things where you keep asking this question and you never get an answer. Uh, Paul talked about this in 1 Timothy 6 talking about those who want to continue to debate all the time in 6.4. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. All they're interested in is controversial stuff and arguing it. So who is my neighbor? So here's how it goes, and I I know I'm squeezing this in in a few minutes, but God, I really want to do your will. I really want to love my neighbor, but you haven't told me who my neighbor is. Have you? Is it the guy next door? Is it the criminal? Is it my family member? Is it the guy I don't know at church? Who is it? Debate rather than what? Obey. I say, well, I don't know where I'm going. No kidding. None of us do. He's the one who knows where we're going. No one knows where we're going to end up. (laughs) Do you know what it looks like in your own heart to be completely conformed to the image of Christ? I don't. Neither do you. We don't know where we're going. But we want to know where we're going. And so we don't even get to calculate where we're going. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. But where are we going to go, Lord, tomorrow? What do you say to Peter? Follow me. And he gave Peter a little wink and insight. You're going to go to, someone's going to take you to a place and they're going to kill you. So, follow me. (laughs) What about John? So, I'm out of time. We'll, We'll return to it tomorrow. This, so, instead of answering who's my neighbor, Jesus rolls into the parable of the Samaritan. And you know it. 
A guy gets robbed and beaten up. One priest come by, comes by and says, I don't want to mess with this. Goes to the other side of the road. Uh, a Levite comes by and says, I don't want to mess with this. He goes to the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan comes by, which he purposely picks Samaritan because the Jews hated them. And the Samaritan has compassion and takes care of the guy. And he says to him, all right, who is his neighbor? And the guy said, obviously, the one who helped him. And then Jesus said, same thing. Look at bottom of verse 37. Go and do the same. <laughs> no, we're not here to debate. Go and do. So, the answer to who's your neighbor is in the command itself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're the neighbor. If that neighbor were you, what would you do for them? If that were your clone, what would you do for them? Would you be concerned? See, this isn't self-love. It's, that's, it's them. It's the neighbor is you. What would you do? If that were you bleeding on the sidewalk, would you walk by yourself? If that were you sitting in the pew next to you, hurting, would you ignore you? Would you want to know what's going on in your own soul that you need help with? That you need whatever you need? Would you want to know? Go to God in prayer and ask. Those people in your church and your family, all believers, they're you. You're the neighbor. And it's you and Christ in them. And this is what the church is. Right? With our gifts and our service and all that, we could, we all have spiritual gifts. We could all be intent on serving. We could all be, uh, you know, Bible scholar, know a whole lot about the Bible. We could, we could have a, a, a nice building and all the stuff and money that we need. But if we don't have comp- obedience to Christ and service to one another, then our church is weak. And if there's, you know, in some places, they're still gathering together, but the lampstand, <laughs> as uh, the light of Christ has left that group sometime in the past. Because it's just become about church and not about each other in uh, service of the Lord and them. And that's what the body of Christ is, what the church is. And so, right, we've got a lot to pray for. Um, and uh, we've got to stop because I'm over. So let's pray now. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospels and the epistles that reveal to us the richest of things, which are uh, consist of our minds and how they should work, how we should think. And, and this thinking, Father, is what will set us free. Um, there is nothing to fear. You're the one who can melt the earth. By entrusting our entire lives to you in obedience, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Teach us, Father, to be convinced of it convinced of your reality and your will, your plan, so that we may give over ourselves more easily. We ask in Christ's name, amen.